Welcome, I'm Sirius Afshar, and this is the Wigos Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection, COVID-19 Crisis Edition. In this monthly podcast, we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between informal economy and social protection, including debates around workers' health provision, pension schemes for older workers, as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods. And in this month, we bring you the third and last part of the special mini-series on social protection for informal workers in the context of the COVID-19 global pandemic. In this episode, we will look more closely on how governments around the world are responding to the global crisis in order to address to the urgent social protection needs of vulnerable people, in particular informal workers. To help us understand the main challenges and concrete issues policymakers are facing as the first government responses are being implemented, we invited Valentina Barca. Valentina is an independent consultant and she is a specialist on social protection delivery systems. She's part of a multidisciplinary research team called SPACE that is working to provide policy analysis to the responses on social protection during this global pandemic in order to support countries to think about how to better address to the current crisis. In this talk, Valentina analyzes issues related to the targeting of informal workers, pattern in government responses, implementation problems that emerge, why some countries are responding quicker and more effectively than others, and which are the challenges and lessons to reach informal workers that we can take from the policies that are being implemented. Without further ado, here's our talk with Valentina Barca. Valentina, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. You've been tracking and analyzing social protection responses and the implementation of those policies. Were you already able to capture any patterns on how governments are responding? Um, yes. So not necessarily me individually, but there's been a lot of collective efforts led by different actors to track what has been happening globally. And there's one reference in particular by Ugo Gentilini and others. They've been tracking what's been happening. And broadly, we can see the types of responses falling in two main buckets. There's been a lot of efforts to make sure that existing social protection programs are not collapsing at the moment when people need it the most. So changes in modality, let's think about, for example, school feedings. Children are not going to school during the lockdowns. Therefore, how do we make sure that the kids are receiving that support even if they're not in school? But we also see a second category, which are adaptations to existing programs or new programs that build on existing social protection programs. And those adaptations uh, include enhancements of the adequacy of the transfer. So the amount that is given, for example, of cash transfers or the time that people are receiving those transfers. And we see those types of adaptations happening to date in 68 programs across 46 countries. We have another type of adaptation, which is in terms of coverage. So you could either have an existing program that's ex expanding to new people to reach the caseloads that weren't previously reached, or new programs that are somewhat building on, on existing systems to reach new caseloads. 
And this is happening across 413 programs in 159 countries to date. So there has been massive efforts to be enhancing coverage. And the big question is, to what extent have these efforts included informal workers? The third type of adaptation is around the comprehensiveness. So very often in kind of routine social protection, there's only really addressing one type of risks and lack of income, for example, through cash transfers. And here with this type of emergency, we need to be thinking more comprehensively about what other types of risks people are facing. Do they have health insurance? Do they need psychosocial supports and other care services, etc., etc.? Can you mention some of the most common challenges you have found that governments are facing to extend social protection to informal workers in this moment of the global crisis? Um, so I'm going to focus on social assistance specifically because social insurance, and by social insurance we mean contributory social protection, but the challenges there are more obvious. Most informal workers do not have any form of, of social insurance and that's a massive gap that we're seeing with this crisis and one that hopefully will be addressed over time. But from the social assistance perspective, of course, there's the opportunity of supporting people through non-contributory social protection. And when we think of, of supporting new caseloads, and especially that vast caseload of what social protection practitioners call the missing middle, so all of those people who are not the ultra-poor, who are usually targeted by many social assistance programs, so we're talking very often about less than 5% of population, and they're not those who are covered by social insurance who tend to be those who are better off. So how do we reach these new caseloads? And we can separate this concept out when we think about targeting. It's not very helpful to think of it as a unitary process because we can actually think about it in four different phases. There's a sort of a policy choice in terms of who do we want to be eligible. There's a fiscal choice. Do we have the money to actually reach those people? And then there's more practical operational choices in terms of how do you put those policy and fiscal choices into practice? How do you design a system that actually does that? And then how do you actually implement that? Um, and we see challenges in extending social protection to informal workers at each and every one of those phases. So in many countries, if we think about the policy and the fiscal choice, there's actually an explicit choice not to be targeting informal workers, despite a lot of the evidence that's showing that they are the, the most effective. And the, the reason is that, well, there's often, I mean, especially in countries where poverty rates are incredibly high, there's still a very strong focus on the poorest and most vulnerable. And somehow the informal workers are anyway deemed better off and less in need. So there's this focus on those who are most poor, most vulnerable, labor constrained. And this is very often justified because of just lack of resources to reach such a high segment of caseloads and maybe even build expectations for future support. There's a lot of fear of moral hazard as well from a policy and fiscal choice perspective. Uh, the idea that what if people feel that they can keep on staying in the informal economy because anyway they will be supported and it doesn't matter if they're not contributing. And we've seen that even in high-income countries. It's been a massive debate in Italy, which is the country that I am from. There's been in some countries, we even see sort of giving up before the country even tries. There's no easy system to reach these caseloads, so this is too complicated. We can't really deal with this type of uh, policy decision. Um, but when it comes to the practical aspects, there's been a lot of countries that have actually been courageous and made important policy choices to be including informal workers. But even where that policy choice is made, then putting that into practice 
I mean, as I just said, isn't easy. And countries have really been grappling with the sort of design and implementation of systems to reach informal workers because they're often missing from existing social protection databases and social registries. There's no easy way for them to provide proof of income. They don't have any necessarily any relationship with existing social protection systems. So they're not known to the system. So imagine you're a typical social worker doesn't necessarily know them or have an easy way to reach them. Now let's discuss this missing middle that you just mentioned, as this is where informal workers fall into. Often they might not be protected by social assistance, as they are not the poorest of the poor, and nor they are protected by social insurance schemes like the formal workers are. But now this has changed and some governments are scrambling to reach them with this emergency responses. How are governments addressing the situation to really target informal workers? Can you mention any interesting examples? Yes. So again, we can see efforts along a spectrum and it's almost a spectrum from more universal approaches to more targeted approaches. And by definition, programs and efforts to reach everyone in theory also reach informal workers. So We see in a few countries that have been discussed quite a lot, Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, the intention to target absolutely everyone within the country. And in that case, that would include informal workers. There's, of course, a few caveats there in terms of how is that actually being achieved in practice? How is the registration system being set up for people to actually apply for that program and, and get the money? Is, is there sort of an automatic you receive the cash or, or not? And in many cases, we're seeing actually some of these universally targeted programs uh, still not having delivered the, the money for exactly these reasons, because they're looking for ways to authenticate and to uh, reduce the risks of inclusion of those who they don't want to be including. There's, of course, another approach is just universal categorical programs that, by definition, cut across population groups. So your child grants, your social pensions, and those we're seeing a few countries, let's, um, for example, Sri Lanka and Nepal, really investing on those and uh, using that as a way to cut across population and including informal workers. Some of the most interesting examples that we've been looking at, and I'm speaking here also on behalf of the broader team that I've been working working with at space this is a we've been financed by diffid and, and giz and we've been looking at social protection approaches to the covid-19 response and supporting governments and their thinking and some of the most interesting approaches we've seen include targeting out of everybody who's already receiving social assistance, who's already receiving social insurance, who's currently receiving an income, and targeting everybody else. And that uses an ID system as a backbone, and then you're getting rid of people who already receive and targeting the others. And we're seeing that as an example in, in Namibia and Bolivia. Then, of course, there's options of targeting upwards from existing data that social protection systems have. So we call these in, in the sector, we call these social registries. And some countries have got very high coverage within their social registries. Over 85, 90% of population are included. 
So in that case, uh, if you expand the eligibility criteria, by definition, to some extent, you are reaching the informal workers. So Brazil is an example, and, and there's many, many others that are using social registry data, especially in, in Latin America. There's also, I mean, as we go more and more targeted, there's also really interesting experiences of trying to use existing data coming directly from informal workers. So from informal worker organizations, from chambers of commerce, etc., uh, etc., et and using that data to explicitly target specific categories of informal workers Cape Verde has been doing that and uh, quite a few municipalities and there's a few countries that are incorporating data from informal worker organizations into their routine targeting approaches. And then, of course, more generically, there's been increasing efforts in countries we've been working with to target urban and peri-urban populations. In many countries, routine social assistance programs are mainly in rural areas. And we know the challenges of urban informal workers are particularly high, especially with the COVID-19 situation. Anyway, basically, the bottom line is that what you can do in any given country hinges on what you already have in that country. The more inclusive, the more universal, the more developed some of the underlying systems, the ID system, the social protection information system, the more you can be doing. Many countries have started the implementation of these emergency cash grants initiatives. It's been maybe one or two months Although this is a moving target, I, I know you've been able to, to observe already some problems concerning the implementation of these measures. Can you mention some of the dimensions that can lead to delays in the delivery, uh, which is causing some of the intended beneficiaries not receiving the cash grant transfers? Yes, we're definitely starting to see quite a a separation between the, the grand declarations that some governments have been making and then what they've actually been able to achieve, and especially to achieve that in a timely manner. So if there's something that we've learned from the humanitarian sector is that in a crisis like this, we need to be thinking about timeliness and taking timeliness really seriously. There's a lot of people that are living hand to mouth and just one or two months of lost income means that you're coming to a point where you're not able to put food on the table and very often much less time than that. So where we're seeing delays of one, two, three, four months, where we're seeing transfers only starting in the summer, that's going to be a serious problem. Definitely a, a massive missed opportunity. And the thing is that, again, you can have a grand design, you might want to be reaching informal workers and the missing middle, but ultimately it comes down to your approaches to registration, enrollment, payments, and then whether you have a good grievance and sort of accountability system to support that. And of course, any policy choice, any design choice that you're making brings trade-offs with it. So if you're trying to do something really fast, you might be giving up in terms of coverage and inclusiveness of, of your program. And in many countries, we're also seeing the outreach and communication, that last mile support not taken very seriously. So you can design a great registration system, but if your informal workers are not informed, if you haven't explicitly reached out to them and found a channel to communicate with them, they will not be applying. Just to summarize, countries have been 
been adopting a lot of innovative ways to reach people and register them fast. And, and actually what we've seen for the first time maybe ever is vast use of online registration mechanisms, which have enabled very fast registration of massive caseloads. So in Thailand, for example, managing to have 22 million people register just in a couple of weeks. Um, South Africa, within three days, had, I think, more than 5 million people register. The numbers can be very vast, and that can work if you help people to apply, for example, leveraging informal work organizations to help people in the application process. What are the barriers that you have found that informal workers are facing now to access these emergency benefits? So what's interesting here is that some of the traditional barriers to access to social protection programs are actually almost relieved in this emergency situation, partly because there is so much knowledge and understanding. Everyone's watching the news. Everyone's very careful to know what programs are out there to, to support people that, the, for example, some of the traditional information barriers are overcome with this emergency. Usually a lot of the most vulnerable, most marginalized people are the ones who don't know about being entitled to a program, for example. And another thing which is helping in countries that have taken this seriously of really simplifying eligibility rules and criteria, making them as, as understandable and transparent as possible. And that really helps to address some of the barriers to access that are faced by vulnerable populations and including informal workers. There's some other important barriers to traditional programs, such as stigma, for example, that again, if everybody, if large sections of population are receiving, because we're all in this together, we're in the same boat, those are actually being addressed and people don't feel any stigma in applying for these programs, which is a big problem for standard routine social assistance. But then what's being exacerbated on the other side are some of the barriers that are the costs of accessing and the barriers linked to illiteracy, linked to digital literacy, not only functional literacy, barriers that are linked to sometimes distance if the way to apply for a program is, is you have to go to a local office or not feeling comfortable with authorities and because you've never really interacted with them before. Uh, and digital applications, to some extent, they, they solve that problem problem, but they exacerbate other problems of illiteracy that I mentioned before. So the types of barriers that are being faced, again, depend on how the system is set up, and any system will present access barriers. The real challenge is how do you overcome those? How do you set up a system that explicitly supports those who are facing the biggest barriers to access to, to overcome that? In Ghana, as an example, the people are being given an additional transport allowance to be able to travel to the places where they need to be going to either to apply or to collect their cash. There's little things that can be done that can actually make a big difference in terms of addressing those barriers that are faced. And again, from a communications perspective, but also beyond, especially with digital platforms, has helping people to apply online and actually supporting them in the whole process of that, supporting them in, the, in making sure they have all of their documentation requirements lined up will be absolutely critical to get some of the most vulnerable people enrolled. One more thing I'd like to say is that what we're seeing across countries is, is that those that have actually thought through in advance what might happen in the case of a shock, what could my systems be doing if there were a shock, are, are better placed. So preparedness is playing a big role here. We've seen delays in registration and enrollment in payments, 
where there have been unclear and complex processes, complex eligibility rules and roles and responsibilities that are scattered across lots of different actors and no one really knowing who's doing what and ultimately responsibility evaporates. And uh, we've been seeing a lot of that in decentralized contexts where there's been sort of blaming across central and decentralized levels and politicization of that. But by definition, if you set up a process in a day, a registration system, it will not be able to endure, especially the crazy number of caseloads that we've seen with COVID. Even in the US, and we're not only talking about low-income countries, the information system collapsed when you see 6, 8, 10 million people applying in the matter of days, same in, in the UK, same in many other high-income countries, um, unless you've thought through the surges in capacity that you need. I mean, we've seen in, in high-income countries, people hiring and moving staff across government to work on social assistance. And we're not talking about 5, 10, 100 staff. We're talking about 5,000, 10,000 staff in the UK moved to be working on, on the Universal Credit Programme. So these things need to be thought through, otherwise the, the systems will collapse. Now that you've mentioned these digital tools to target vulnerable people, we, we see now that technology has also been used in other stages. Many countries and cities are resorting to digital payments to deliver emergency cash grants. Do you think this is a positive alternative for policymakers? Does it really have the potential to reach the most vulnerable informal workers? So even here, when we talk about digital payments, there's many options there that fall within that hat of digital payments. And each and every one of them has different pros and cons. And the, the countries that have been doing better are the ones who've thought creatively across different solutions for different population groups. So, for example, who has a bank account receives their money in one way. Those who don't have a bank account, there's innovative ways that you can be generated pins, kind of one-off pins that they can use for verification and use them within ATMs for receiving over-the-counter cash. We've seen that in Peru as, as one example, or kind of expanding the, the agent network so that people can, can access cash even beyond banks and traditional agents. So again, it's it's not about e-payments versus manual payments. It's about thinking through what challenges will people be facing and how do I address those for different population groups because there will be different challenges. With the mantras here being about giving choice to beneficiaries because different people have different preferences in, in terms of how to access cash. And very often there's this sense that e-payments are this fancy no-cash solution, but actually most people prefer to then go somewhere and cash out rather than go and do the transaction directly online. So there's you always have to think about that last mile of service delivery. And again, countries that have been doing well have been thinking of different payment strategies based on the characteristics of their beneficiary population, really thinking about accessibility and making that last mile of service delivery with agent networks and solving even the liquidity problems of the agent networks because it's not a given that they have enough cash for this sudden surge in caseload. So you need to think through all of the potential barriers, that they're, all the hiccups that you could have along the way and preempt those even to, to avoid the queues and all the problems of the new social distancing requirements that COVID has imposed. Indeed, here in Brazil, two weeks ago or so, they had a liquidity problem, so they had to print more money <laughs> because there wasn't enough. Interesting. <laughs> anyway, now on the positive side, 
What can you tell us about how timely these responses are and what kind of features might explain how some countries had quicker responses whereas others are struggling more? Does it have to do with the so-called vertical or horizontal expansion? Can you briefly explain these concepts? Yes. So I would say it doesn't necessarily have to do with vertical and horizontal expansion. A vertical expansion, as I was mentioning at the beginning, is, is giving more to people who are already receiving. So by definition, you'll see in many countries, first of all, that is not reaching your typical informal workers, because those already receiving social assistance are quite a small proportion of population and usually really the, the poorest of the poor, which is a problem. That shouldn't be the case. Ideally, in a social protection system, we'd like to see all life cycle risks covered. So anyone potentially in need being able to receive when in need. So the vertical expansions, because you already have the data on those people, you already have the payment approach to reach those people They're theoretically faster to deliver, definitely. But some countries don't like to do them because they create expectations of higher transfer values in the future, etc. So there's reasons why some countries don't go ahead with that. Horizontal expansions, by definition, they're more complex. And we're talking about reaching higher caseloads. And one thing which is important, and I said this at the beginning, is to stress that it's not just about an existing program expanding, but even potentially an emergency program covering any of those gaps in, in existing cases loads. They're more complicated and a lot of the challenges I mentioned before with registration are, I mean, they're all linked to these expansions of caseloads. Now, countries that have been doing well, there's a few things they, again, I've been saying this throughout, but there's a few things they have in common. First of all, preparedness. They've thought through to some extent what they would be doing in case of an emergency. I think no one realized you'd ever get to a point where you almost have 100% of your population affected. COVID has really been a game changer, even for those of us working on shock responsive social protection. They have stronger systems, more inclusive systems, more universal approaches to guaranteeing social protection. So because they already cover higher caseloads or because they have more different types of risks covered, they're more able to leverage existing systems to, to do that. Quite a few of the countries that have responded well had strong civil registration and vital statistics systems, strong ID systems in place, because this is something that governments are, are really worried about is potentially giving the same transfer twice or corruption, fraud, and having a strong authentication of who is receiving is pegged on being able to verify identities. So that the more you have that ID system, CRVS system, the easier that gets. And also there are countries that have taken sequencing very seriously. So they've sort of started with something easy, maybe hazard, sort of ad hoc, not really perfect, not really targeting the right people, but at least it was something. And then they started adding more onto that. They were developing as they were going along, and, and that's been really important. I mean, again, I... I haven't worked in depth in any of these countries, but we've definitely been seeing some uh, interesting approaches in, in Peru and Namibia uh, and Pakistan, for example. What do you think are the lessons these crises will leave for policymakers in the future concerning social protection policies in the context where informal work is more pervasive? Well, uh, 
lesson one, you cannot have large portions of your population completely unaccounted for. The countries that had very restrictive, completely poverty-focused systems where there is very little in place to build from, I think there's been a very big lesson learned there. Prepare, prepare, prepare. I mean, is another one is how much just having thought through a few things in advance and had a few standard operating procedures on who would be responsible for what and broadly what type of targeting approach you'd be using, etc., etc. Kind of that uh, has made a big difference. I mean, digital technology and even the level of penetration within the population has also definitely helped some countries to fare better than others in terms of how they've been able to support informal workers. But that's not, not an obvious one to solve for many countries. So yes, a, lo a lot of work ahead. To wrap up, can you tell us a bit more about um, what kind of work you've been doing in this uh, policy research group space? What is this group? What does it do? What kind of discussion are you having? Yes, so we're a team of now... I think 15 plus people and each of us comes from a slightly different perspective and we also have a member of WeGo within our, our team, Laura Alvarez, and we've been supporting countries in thinking through the options on the table in terms of response to COVID. So uh, very often they're, they're very difficult decisions to be made when you have different country partners and donors pushing for different things in countries and governments, sometimes with very strong opinions on what they want and do not want. Sometimes, for example, strong preferences for, for food over cash or cash over food or uh, wanting a digital response when actually there's absolutely not the context in country to be doing that. And our role has been to systematically look across different options and even where these are complementary, just noting the extent to which these help to achieve the, the core outcomes of supporting the needs of, of affected populations. So are they covering those who are most in need? Are they uh, giving enough? Are the amounts that they're giving adequate to actually support the populations or the duration of these? Are they really supporting the populations given that we're likely to see a scenario where uh, it's, it's not just a one-off lockdown, but some of the economic impacts and consequences will be very much long-term? Uh, are we comprehensively addressing the risks that people are facing or, or do we have a bit of a tunnel vision and just focusing on maybe giving them some cash and that will solve all problems and we, we definitely know that is not the case and we know especially that is not the case for informal workers where the priority really is, is getting them back to earning their livelihoods. And beyond that, we're looking at timeliness, we're looking at cost effectiveness, we're looking at other really important dimensions of predictability, sustainability of different options. You might have a great techie solution that might be good as a one-off thing, but if that is not actually building that future system that we want to be seeing going forwards, that might not be so much a good idea to be investing on that. So that longer-term view will be really fundamental going forwards. Valentina Barca, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And if you want to learn more about government's social protection responses to the COVID-19 crisis, we will leave some links at the description of the episode. This was the final part of our special mini-series on the global pandemic and social protection for informal workers. But of course, this issue is not going away anytime soon, and it will be a part of our lives for a while. So 
we will continue to discuss in our monthly show the implications of the COVID-19 on informal workers' health and livelihoods, but connected to other pressing social protection topics that are still more than ever in the agenda. So if you liked our podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Teacher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And please make sure to follow Wego on social media. We are on Twitter and Facebook, so you stay updated on our latest news and publications about how the crisis is affecting informal workers, what are the workers' demands and actions, government's responses, policy debates, and much more. I am Sirius Afshar, and this was the Wego's Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection, COVID-19 Crisis Edition. Take care and see you next month.